0: Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. And it's great to be with you. I mean, we haven't been away from you that long, you know. But uh, this, is, this is so good. It feels so right, doesn't it? Jesus must be here. Man, I've been down in Mexico twice over the last uh, 10 days and. I love it down there. It's good stuff. God is doing amazing things uh, down in Ensenada. Uh, just uh, things on fire down there. You know, we've, we've worked with uh, Horizon, which is kind of a branch of Calvary Chapel uh, down in Ensenada for years with Juan Domingo, and uh, so wonderful to see what God's doing uh, with his son now, Jonathan. Domingo, who's now pastoring the church, and his dad's kind of the elder statesman, um, and has gone through all of his health problems, still alive, thank God. And uh, but you know, just vibrant. But I have to say that they do worship a little bit different than we do. Uh, This, this, um, you know, I don't know if that's the future for us. If it is, buck up, you know. So, you know, uh, the lights go down and the music's going... And the drums start, you know, and then the lights are... And then the smoke, smoke machine starts, you know. And, and, you know, the drums and the, the lead guitar, and it's just like, whoa, you know, this is Cape Canaveral. And, uh, and then to come back to our sweet... Uh, you know, surf, uh, laid-back music here, you know, which is what I'm comfortable and used to. I just, I, I do wonder, what is the future? Because I, I travel a bit, and what they do is what all of South and Latin America does and all of Europe does. So I, I, we're the exception, you know, the, the laid-back, uh, just you kind know, <laughs> So, and it's all good, you know, it's not right or wrong, it's just, uh, so, it's all good. Well, this morning, I want to study the will of God. Are you open for that? Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's this crassus, this uh, brackish water that begins to occur of salt and, and fresh water where now it's not just my will, but I have another will to deal with. You know, when you get married, it's not just you anymore, it's what does your spouse want to do? When you have children, it's not just you anymore. It's now what are the needs of your children. You become a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not just you anymore. Uh, There's a God, a good God, a loving God that has a will, has a plan. Another word for will is has wants. Wants for you. And there's some of us that uh, don't even think about it. We're just kind of drifting through life, and, and this is the first time, maybe this morning, that you're actually thinking about this. Others, maybe unfortunately, agonize over this, and obsessively agonize over it, to the point where you're wondering if God wants you to put a little less salt on your meat. What's the will of God regarding salt? And and you're into the micromanaging of the will of God. So the question is, as the will of God comes into our life, uh, how much freedom do we have to also have a will and to exercise our wants and our creativity and our choices? So we're going to study a very controversial passage of Scripture, and you are free to disagree with me. As always, um, I think you'll be wrong, but (laughs) you're free to disagree with how I read the text here because um, it's, it's all in regards to the will of God. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your holy word. It is holy, and it has the power to change lives. God, our hope is by your Holy Spirit, we would... Emerge from here with a clearer, crisper view of you. Less of us and more of you. So reveal yourself through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 21. And in Acts 21, beginning in verse 1, we're told that after we had torn ourselves away from them, there's this emotional parting that occurs in Acts 20 and 21, we put out to the sea and sailed straight to Kos. Next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara and we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it. Don't you love the details that Dr. Luke is giving us here? On the south side of Cyprus, we sailed for Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was unloaded, unloaded its cargo. Finding disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul, plural, not just one, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. Notice the bonding and the closeness of the Christian community at this time. They, they find disciples there. They didn't even know these disciples and now after a week they're just family and they all walk with Paul back to the ship including wives and children. There on the beach they knelt. After saying goodbye to each other we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, Ptolemy, where we greeted the other, the brothers, and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, which is kind of in the Haifa area, if you know where uh, uh, in modern Israel, and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And we're assuming that as prophets, they prophesied something similar to what was being prophesied regarding Paul and what was going to happen in Jerusalem. So Paul was passionate about the will of God. You you have to believe if you want the will of God, Paul wanted the will of God. Uh, If you read, I think it's seven out of all of his, his epistles, he begins the epistle by saying, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God he pivoted his entire life around the will of God it says in Ephesians 6 6 that we are to be like slaves to Christ doing the will of God from our hearts and Paul believed that it was God's will that he go to Jerusalem even though It wasn't going to be easy. And that's difficult for us as modern Christians because usually when we're looking for the will of God, we're also looking for what's good and easy and nice. And when we get into something that's difficult, we often assume we somehow got out of the will of God because the will of God would not be difficult. But Paul understands that the will of God here at Jerusalem is going to be difficult. Now look at the map and see where Paul has been traveling and where he's going. This is his third missionary journey. And he spends a great deal of time in Ephesus and then before he goes to Jerusalem, he goes, crosses the Aegean, goes back over to Greece one more time. He's collecting an offering during this last trip where he's going to bring it to Jerusalem to help the brethren that are there suffering through the famine and the difficulties of persecution in Jerusalem. And you can see that he finally uh, sails down and, and in the text it tells us that he passes, he lands at Kos and then he lands at Rhodes. I've not been to that island, I've been to this island. Rhodes is an amazing uh, island. Um, then to Patra and then on the south side of Cyprus all the way down to Jerusalem. And finding disciples there... He has these disciples in the Spirit, which is implying prophesying that he should not go to Jerusalem. See that in verse 4? Through the Spirit, they urge Paul to not go to Jerusalem, meaning with the backing of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You're feeling it. With the backing of the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul feeling that he has the backing of the Holy Spirit, that he needs to go to Jerusalem. So there's a tension here regarding the will of God. The question is, is this a prophetic warning that you, if you do go to Jerusalem, this is what we see coming down the road, or is it a prophetic warning and a command, don't go? It's a big question, Uh, In the gift of prophecy, I won't dwell on this issue for long, but many, many times when a message comes from God through someone with the gift of prophecy, it's hard for the prophet to not filter and and give the flavor of themselves in the message. God gives a very simple message and says, it's going to be tough in Jerusalem. And the prophet says, God says, I think you shouldn't go because it's going to be tough in Jerusalem. You see that's a very different message. And so Paul dealing with the the disciples there entire they are sensing that it's the Holy Spirit saying don't go. But Paul is obstinate and decides no, I am going and he understands that he should go. So here's a question for you. Did the Apostle Paul have a different understanding of the will of God than you and me? And how you arrive at the will of God? Is it different than yours? Now, let me let that question just linger in you for a moment. Because some of you are thinking, uh oh. I don't know what you mean by that. I just never thought about that. That's the point. We assume that the way we think about the will of God is must be the way it is. And I'm pushing back and saying, maybe it's not. And if you and I don't think about the will of God properly, that's going to become a big deal in our Christian life. And it ends up revealing more of our psychology than it does our theology. Let me give you an example. I counsel people who tend to be obsessive and compulsive and anxious and fearful. and When they come to the will of God, guess what? They tend to be obsessive, compulsive, anxious, and fearful, neurotic, regarding the will of God. I don't know what the will of God is. I absolutely don't. I wanna get it right, I wanna get it right. And in my question is, is that God? Or is that, is that me? And, and you could push back in any number of ways where you see that you and I perhaps might flavor the will of God. There was a point in Paul's life just going back to the map again where you'll see Paul uh, finds himself in Ephesus. He sends some leaders, some of his uh, inner core of people up to Macedonia. And he's going to follow three months later. So three months later, he goes up to Troas to cross over by, by boat over to Macedonia and God opened up this huge door. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 2 2. I'm not making this up. There's this huge evangelistic door that opens up in Troas to preach the gospel. Now, the question would be is that the will of God? And you and I would say, absolutely. The door is open. Paul, you got to preach the gospel. Paul gets worried that he hasn't heard about what's going on in Macedonia. He's worried about the disciples there like a mother hand, and he says, oh, I want to preach, but phooey. I'm going to just leave it and go find out what's happening with my brothers over in Macedonia. Do you have that kind of freedom with the will of God in your life? Or... Is that failure for you? I should, have done, I should have stayed. I could have, should have. Uh, I, uh, w- and w- will you live with that for the rest of your life? People that sh- would have heard the gospel, but you never shared. And now God is so small because those people will never hear it because you didn't go through the open door at Troas. And you felt the freedom to get on a boat and go check out and see how the disciples are. I'm telling you, Paul had a different view and a different freedom regarding the will of God than maybe you and I do. It's getting real quiet in here, okay. When I, uh, example from my own life, when I uh, was younger, I know I'm still young, but much younger, uh, Jan and I moved to the East Coast for nine years, and um, we wanted to plant some churches and uh, do that whole thing and we felt that it was God. and uh, But before that happened, uh, we, we built a church in Lake Arrowhead, and that was a tough place to start ministry because it was just so beautiful and fabulous, and we would go to the edge of the mountain and look down at Gehenna, where all the smog was, and say, oh God, I'm thankful we're not down there, and we just lived this idyllic life in Lake Arrowhead. So when we built the building, the brand new building, I went over on a Saturday morning, and I wanted to imagine what it would be like to be able to preach from this new building. And I was standing on the stage all by myself, and just kind of feeling it and looking around, and I felt the Spirit say to me, do you love me more than these? And I knew the scripture that he was referring to, and I got worried. I said, Lord, you know that I love you, but you're not saying, you couldn't be saying that I'm going to give this away to somebody else and move to the East Coast, which is what I did, but then after we were there for a year or two... Um, I realized, I began to have second thoughts over the timing of when we went to the East Coast. That I think maybe it was irresponsible for me to just up and leave in three months and go and hand the church off to my assistant pastor that I should have groomed him better, I should have taken more time because the East Coast could wait and so forth. So finally, when I moved back here, I'm sharing at a Bible college and I'm sharing my new view of, quote, the will of God. It was the will of God that I go to the East Coast, but I'm not sure it was the will of God of the timing that I went. And that maybe it was really irresponsible on my part to go right away and I should have waited. And I could feel all the Bible school students tense up. Like, uh, you know, either it's the will of God or not. You find out the will of God, you do it, you just do it. You don't ask questions, you don't look back. But there I was, and, and I wasn't asked back to speak at that school anymore. <laughs> but I think I was growing more comfortable with the idea that God's bigger than me. And I'll talk about this in a moment, but the, the, the question is not just do you obey God and his will, but is God big enough to fulfill his plan on planet Earth without you. This great big God, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, these great doctrines that we believe in are so big uh, that he can handle missteps, mistakes, uh, miscues, misreads, and still get his job done. So now that I've stirred up the tension here, let's read on and see what happens. After we had been there a number of days, now he's in Caesarea. Agabus, the famed Agabus, came down from Judea. He's heard either in the spirit or knows directly that Paul is coming. So he meets Paul in Caesarea and he took, Paul's belt so don't picture your belt men picture like a bathrobe tie he takes the belt of Paul off of Paul and he ties Paul's hands and his feet with it like shackles and he says the Holy Spirit says in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, Agabus is a great prophet. He's known to be a great prophet. That's why the content of his prophecy is included verbatim. But you'll notice Agabus doesn't carry anything over from himself, any implications, anything. Just gives the message, which you and I can interpret both ways. Either maybe don't go to Jerusalem or foretelling, this is just what's gonna happen if you do go to Jerusalem. But listen, in verse 12, when we heard this, that is Luke and the rest of the people, we and the people there pleaded. So now Luke is admitting that he joined the people, pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul finally answers and he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Now, how do you think they said that? What was the tone of how they said it? Kind of like, Great, the Lord's will be done. Or whatever. Paul believes that the will of God is for him to go to Jerusalem. They believe that God is speaking so he doesn't go to Jerusalem and they all put their hands up and say, the Lord's will be done. I guess God's gonna have his way. And after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So here they're persuading, but Paul could not be dissuaded and they're asking for the Lord's will to be done. So here's the question, who knows the will of God? A lot of people will pretend like they know more of the will of God than you do. It gives them power, it gives control into other people's lives, but the question is, do they really? And what are the aspects of the will of God that we should know about? There's so many incidences that I could cite from scripture whereby we're we're forced to ask not only what is the will of God, but what does God do when we misinterpret the will of God? Let me give you an example from the great uh, patriarch, Abraham. Abraham is called, he's the father of faith, right? So he's called from uh, Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, all the way over to Israel, the promised land. Right, And so there's no question what the will of God is. Abraham, go to the promised land. That's the will of God. He gets to the promised land, and the promised land is not a great promise. There's a famine in the land. Abraham has hundreds of employees and thousands of heads of cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys and so forth that have to be provided for. It's no small thing, and he moves through the Promised Land and keeps moving until he's in the south of the Promised Land, the Negev, and then finally finds himself in Egypt because the Nile is flowing even during a famine. And you and I just read the story, and until we have an encounter with Pharaoh where Pharaoh wants... Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Abraham has a lapse of faith and he says to Sarah, tell Pharaoh, you're my sister. Because technically, we, you are kind of my half-sister. A white lie. To save Abraham's skin. It's not a pretty moment in the story of great father of the faith, the great coward. And thankfully, God intervenes and stops Pharaoh from having relationships with Sarah because Sarah is the the prize chosen vessel through which Isaac is going to be born, the promised child. And Abraham is scolded by a pagan about lying. (laughs) Can you imagine? He broke one of the Ten Commandments to save his own skin, and a pagan is indicting him about breaking the commandments. And, and so Abraham makes his way back to the promised land with his tail between his legs. And God says, I'm going to bless you. Now I want you to look to the north and the south, and the east and the west, wherever you, your feet touch, the whole land is yours. The point of the story there is that God is bigger than Abraham and God's will is bigger than my ability to just hear God's will I think that's that's worth writing down I'm gonna write it down in a moment (laughs) that God's will is bigger than your ability to hear God's will so that means if you make a left turn and it was supposed to be a right turn, has God is God forever stuck? When I was first saved, I uh, was leaving Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in my VW bus and uh, full of the Holy Spirit and uh, making my way north on Fairview. And I thought, wow, I've got the spirit in me. There's no telling what God might say to me. Uh, this, is, this, this is crazy. I've got a hotline to heaven. And I stopped at the stop sign. I said, God, should I go home or should I turn right and go witness to my friend? I'm feeling right. Let's turn right. And so I turn right. You know what a steering wheel is like on a VW bus. <laughs> I turn right, getting ready to go witness, go to the door, knock. I'm in the will of God, and nobody's home. (laughs) And I remember driving home, this is gonna be harder than I thought. (laughs) So let's ask the question about knowing the will of God. Jesus obviously taught us, but there's two parts initially to hearing the will of God, the voice of God. One is God is speaking, but the other is I'm listening, right? I need to hear what God is saying. Can you go back to the slide before that, please? There we go. Yeah. So we're, we're hearing. And, and what I've noticed is that there's several parts of how God speaks, but there's my inability to hear. Let me tell you the different ways God speaks, just a few. One is general revelation. Scripture talks about that, that the the, the creation is declaring the glory of God. Uh, That was one of the earliest things, how God spoke to me, that God is this great, big, wonderful God of order. Uh, Then there's specific revelation, which is the scriptures. Then there's prophetic revelation through the Holy Spirit. Then there's the wisdom of counsel. A lot of people around you. That's the difficult thing about Paul's story is he not only has the prophetic going on, but it's the wisdom of all of his friends saying don't go to Jerusalem. And then there's circumstances. It doesn't matter if you feel like God has told you that that gal is gonna be your wife. If the circumstances don't change, Uh, She's not your wife. You can think about things all you want, but she has to decide that she wants you. That's the circumstance, right? The door ultimately has to open. And then there's the inner guiding of the Holy Spirit. But then the flip side of that, of hearing God, is me being able to hear it right without polluting the data. Because I have all these wants in me. Do you know that you have a lot of wants in you? Chocolate or strawberry, what do you want? Italian, Mexican, what do you want? Jazz, rock and roll, what do you want? That's just just a few. Engineering, doctor, what do you want? Carlsbad, Rhode Island, what do you want? I think you know the answer to that one. There's all these wants that are bubbling, they're legion inside of us. And, and which wants do I get rid of when I come to the Lord and does he transform and which wants are okay? And, and, and so there's this dialogue going on between his wants and my wants and it becomes very much like brackish water. You know the brackish water where salt water from the ocean's coming in, fresh water from the rivers coming down, and it's a mixture and me learning to hear his voice, then there's the most difficult moments of all, which are the Garden of Gethsemane moments, where you already feel like you know what God wants, and you definitely do not want it. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then after three times, you finally have the courage to say, nevertheless, thy will be done. And there's this beautiful moment of surrender. And surrender is actually faith where you're believing that he's good and he's loving in the midst of a broken situation. And you grab a hold of him in the midst of pain and heartache and your will is to choose him. Now when it comes to the will of God, there's two parts to it in my thinking. Theologians talk about two parts in a different way, but I would put it this way. There's the moral will of God. Uh, Don't kill, don't pillage villages, don't steal. Those kind of things, and those are not up for grabs. Those are not debatable, right? They're just very clear commands. But then there's the second part of the will of God, which is the part that we tend to pray about the most, which is really kind of funny, uh, the directionality of God. God, do you want me to buy a house in Carlsbad or San Marcos? Should we unload this house for a while and rent? I don't know. And we're praying, do you want me to take this job or that? the the directionality of God? And this is where we spend most of our time praying about uh, because we want to get it right. God, if I I buy a house in San Marcos, I'm going to witness to all those neighbors. But if they're not ready for it, maybe you want me to buy a house in in Oceanside and maybe that would be the right. I got to get it right. I don't know what God wants me to do. It's this or that. Theologians call that the secret will of God, kind of who can actually know ultimately what God wants. But I just call it the directionality of God. What what is God leading? And here in this text, my point is this. There's a directionality, Jerusalem or not. Should I leave Troas and go up to Macedonia or not? This directionality, and a lot of Christians uh, are very, very narrow on this. That I gotta get it right, and if I don't get it right, I'm gonna live it for the rest of my life and the judgment of God and all this. Or maybe God loves your heart and you're, in the words of Keith Green, a different song that he wrote than the one we sang this morning, give God your best and give to him the rest that you in the moment make the best decision you know how with the wisdom and the counsel and everything else. I And Paul did that. I still think I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. And God, as you read the rest of the book of Acts, God blesses Paul. But if he had listened to the other people, I still believe God's will would have happened somehow because of the bigness of God. And that's the view of the Torah, this beautiful, uh, magnanimous view of the, the counsel of God is so big that we can't change it. So look at this target and ask the question, um, how do you view the will of God? Is it this narrow, narrow, narrow thing? Gotta get it right. And if I don't get it right, I'm gonna suffer the consequences forever. Or do you have a view of the will of God where, yeah, the moral will of God is the, the, the bullseye, but the directionality view of God is just you you give it your best shot and because god is god he's going to take what you need let me let me have you now look at this quote that the person had up earlier knowing the will of god without the character of god that is the nature of god can make god into a traffic cop instead of a loving father are you serving a traffic cop or a loving father we don't have traffic cops here much, but in New England, oh my gosh, the, the, the police love to get off their motorcycle and just flip the signals to a blinking red and just get in the center of the signal with the whistle. And it always is mayhem. <laughs> signals are always better than the traffic cop, unless there's some disaster that's just occurred. But you'll just sit there and, and he'll forget how far the line is a mile back and he'll just favor one side or the other and, 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 and you're just looking to and if you disobey him boy do you get a whistle you know it's like oh okay don't want that guy as my dad not right now do you have a God that's your loving father? I said, man, I love how you're hearing with your heart, and you're doing your best from your heart. And now that you've made this decision, let's see what we can do with it. Because, what does the Bible say? All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what, that's what Romans eight twenty eight is saying. That's exactly what it's saying, that God is so big that all things work together for God for, because you love him and you want what God wants. It doesn't say all things work together for good because you made the right decision, buddy. <laughs> Jan and I spoke, as I said, down in Ensenada, and and we had a decision to make. Whether we go down and spend two nights there, or one night, and we had a discussion about that. I thought, you know, I gotta be responsible, I gotta get back, gotta get back, but we're already down here, and we're gonna be leaving at four o'clock in the afternoon, and we're gonna be at the border crossing for three hours. Is that when we wanna cross, and wouldn't it be better to go back in the morning? So we had this discussion: two nights or one night? I don't know. What is the will of God? Will we miss the will of God if we if we stay two nights or one? Or maybe we are supposed to. Run, you know. Now you can imagine an unbeliever hearing a Christian have this conversation. Like, that's what I don't like about you Christians. You're weird. <laughs> Is your God this persnickety uh, that he can't? If he's God, then he can make two nights or one night. Fabulous. (laughs) So this target, if you can go back to that, the Lord's will be done. We do our best and we give God the rest. There's another verse that you might want to make note of, Romans 3, 30, 11 33, where Paul, regarding the will of God, says this Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And who has known the mind of the Lord and become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be given back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. One day we're all going to be in heaven and you're going to see how your life turned out and in the, in the, in the, all the frayed threads that you saw in your life are gonna be flipped around and you're gonna see this beautiful tapestry and picture that God was weaving into your life. And you're gonna see, well, well, how did that become beautiful? Because I made a wrong decision there. At least in my mind, that was a wrong decision. And it, are we gonna look at that and say, ooh, forever ugly there. Or are we going to look at that and say, oh, my gosh, look what God did for it. Look what God did to it. He turned it into this amazing picture. Joseph had that understanding with his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So again, is that, is that the God that you serve? That big, that loving? Well, when you begin to serve a God like that, it becomes fun. You know, if a musician is playing for a master that's conducting the orchestra and the, the, the orchestra conductor is just this persnicketing, it's no fun to play for him. But if, if he says, yeah, it's feeling better, you guys are getting it, that's amazing. I have been in recording studios a lot watching people record. Do you know what producers and sound engineers do when you sing a note wrong? They never say bad, wrong note, horrible. What would that do to you as an artist? You know what they say? All right. I'm feeling it. That was good. Let's do that again. That was awesome, let's do that again, let's do that again. And so God is doing that with you and saying, come on, let's do that again, let's do that again. C.S. Lewis, regarding this whole thing, he has this great image in his mind, and I've shared this before, Uh, he says that your life is like the stage, and God is the playwright of your story. And he has imagined how your story goes. You got that? And so there's the play, and there's all the players on the stage, and there's the furniture on the stage. And guess what? You, as the actor on the stage, say, you know what? I think I like the stool over here better. And I think how my line reads, I don't like to say it that way the line reads it's a wonderful day I'd rather say it's amazing because that's more me and what Lewis says is we have the latitude to make a lot of different choices that are just us as we go through life but because God is the playwright guess what the play ends being the story that he wrote, and that's the God that you serve. Your story, in the end, will be God's story. Father, thank you this morning that we can can serve a God like this, that you are that big. And just as the Apostle Paul wrestled whether to go to Jerusalem or not, Whether to go to Macedonia or not, God, we wrestle often in different life decisions that we face. And God, we do want to glorify you. Obviously, we pray for forgiveness for the bad decisions that we intentionally made. We thank you that you forgive us. And we thank you, God, as well, that you're bigger than... The decisions that we make that that were maybe good or bad or poor or misguided, that in the end, Jesus Christ will be glorified. So, God, as we go forth, we pray that we would serve a heavenly Father rather than a traffic cop, and that our hearts would be drawn even more towards you to serve you as our loving Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.